welcome back to another episode of the DD Geopolitics Podcast. I am once again joined by Yara, my awesome co-host, just finishing up work for the day. Yara, how are you? I'm doing well. I can't uh, can't complain. Can't complain. That's how we like it. Um, and our guest today, finally, back for another one, is the rock star of geopolitics, Pepe Escobar. Thank you so much, finally, for joining us on video. We are so excited. To Hi, girls. This is this is really, really cool. Yeah, really, I, I, I told a lot of people in Asia and in the U.S. about our conversation today. So Great. Hopefully, they're joining us. So, Pepe, I heard a rumor from our producer that you just got finished some traveling and that you have some bombshells or and or going guns blazing. I think you said you're going <laughs> guns blazing today. So, what what are we ta- what are we talking about here? What what is going on? We're like a baited well, breath. Look, essentially, I would love today to cut to the chase, but big big time. All guns blazing because I would like it to be uh, concise, a short, and not a two or three hour conversation. I think we can pack it up in a, in a half an hour, forty minutes. The the main story of what's going on globally and beyond these two intertwined wars in Ukraine and now in Palestine. Um, well, I am in a sort of a Tolstoy mood. I'm, I'm going to show you, all of you, why. This is the official uh, French poster for Sergei Bondarchuk's masterpiece, which is his adaptation of uh, Tolstoy's War and Peace. And, and this Saturday, I had, a, a, you know, an illuminating experience. In fact, it's a mix of uh, aesthetic illumination and religious experience which was to watch Bondarchuk's masterpiece on the big screen. For the first time, I managed to see it on the big screen. And it was something absolutely extraordinary because this is the restored digital version with excellent sound presented by one of the, one of the French restorers. He, he made an excellent presentation. The film is in four parts. We watched it in three different uh, sequences. There were two long breaks. So to give you an idea, all of you, we started at 2.30 p.m. and we left at 11.30 p.m. (laughs) We literally spent the day in front of the big screen. And it's something absolutely out of this world. It is one, probably is among the top three epics in the history of cinema as a whole. Uh, just to give you an idea, for you know, set pieces which are absolutely mind-boggling, even if you think in terms of um, CGI, if you think in terms of, okay, ah, Ridley Scott can do that, but he does it with CGI. And he said that uh, in his Napoleon, which is going to be out in a few days, uh, he didn't use CGI. Very hard to believe it. Bundarshuk, can you imagine, he shot from... 1962 to 1967, more or less. It took at least five years to shoot the whole movie. And there was no special effects. It was live human beings in the middle of the Battle of Austerlitz. Can you imagine something like this? You you, you only see how big it is when you're actually in front of the big screen actually watching it. And you have 
set pieces there are Visconti style, you know, like uh, the first ball of the St. Petersburg aristocracy when um, Natasha Restova is introduced to high society. So this is something that I'm sure if Visconti saw that, he was envious. It's something that he couldn't do, for instance, in uh, The Leopard, which, by the way, he shot a few years before Bondarchuk shot uh, War and Peace. And then you have the war set pieces, which are absolutely mind-blowing. The Battle of Borodino lasts at least half an hour to 40 minutes. And you see tens of thousands of extras in full regalia on both sides, actually involved in, bat in choreographed battle scenes. And the cameras are all over the place. They, can you imagine that they built towers so the cameras could shoot from above and steady cams at the time they were not as sophisticated as the steady cam nowadays even you can use it you can even use a portable steady cams nowadays and the camera is moving all the time and the camera on the ground uh, when you see a battle scene you have two or three different layers of uh, anything that is happening on the screen it's something absolutely mind-boggling uh, uh, a, final, a final thing that uh, for all of you, if you have, if you ever have the chance to watch it on the big screen, they built a replica of Moscow outside of Moscow for the whole set piece of Napoleon troops burning and plundering Moscow. Can you imagine doing something like this nowadays? Absolutely out of the question. So, 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 so since Saturday, I am in a in a Tolstoy Bondarchuk mega cinematic frame of mind. I said, "Oh man, how can you compete with that? It's absolutely impossible." So, the best that I could do for all of you is to try to to tell you a little story, not a Tolstoyan epic, but a little story of how our war and peace, rather our war and non-peace is going on nowadays, all right? So uh, so take this as a, as a rambling intro. And now let's uh, get to business. Girls, do you have any questions before we start? I'm, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> My mind is completely blown already, so I'm just waiting for the story. <laughs> I think, yeah, let's, let's listen to the story. We probably have some questions more down the line, but we definitely wanna let you kind of just lead this one. Because okay, I know okay, if we girls. start with questions, we're going to go off on tangents and we're not going to get the big story. So let's start okay. with the big story. Okay. All right. So let's try to tell our tale as concisely as possible. Obviously not in a Tolstoyan manner. It's not going to be 1,200 1, pages, right? Okay. So what's going on? Maybe we could start with a vignette. Let's say this will be our prologue. What happened this weekend at the OIC Arab meeting, which may, I, I, I'm sure history books will have a special, a special chapter to how appalling and depressing this meeting was. Because I'm sure that people all over the planet, including the millions of people here in NATO Stan, where I am, that went out in the streets, uh, basically protesting against uh, a genocide in every smartphone, which is what we're living right now, 
they were expecting much more from Arab leaders and Islamic leaders of the organization of the Islamic Conference. So what do we got in the end? We got, uh, I would say, a pathetic final statement, which is a series of blah, blah, blahs that uh, all of us discuss among ourselves, but we expect leaders confronted to a genocide in front of them to have a much more forceful reaction. So uh, they're pleading the UN to do something, they are condemning what's happening, blah, 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 anything practical, absolutely nothing. Why? The Algerians at the Arab meeting that preceded the OIC Arab meeting, they had introduced a draft document which was very, very powerful and basically called for the Arab world and the Islamic world to isolate Israel. And, and that would include cutting off, very, very important, oil shipped to Israel. And that would, uh, a key part of this equation would be the role of Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, and especially Turkey. Why Turkey? Because of the BTC pipeline. This is a very, very important story because uh, uh, this is what I used to call 20-something year ago's pipeline stand. It's an ongoing tragedy, right? Uh, like a fresco, not Bondarchuk-style Tolstoyan, but it's a fresco on oil, gas, and distribution of energy. This pipeline, the BTC, the idea obviously came from the usual suspects, and specifically by Zbigniew Brzezinski. Brzezinski went to Baku in the middle of the 90s to sell this idea to Aliyev. Don't forget that at the time, the old Aliyev was still alive. Very, very foxy, very wily, very, very intelligent character, very dangerous as well. And he said, look, let's uh, uh, consider that you have these absolutely outstanding oil reserves here in the Caspian. Let's sell them to Europe. But first, we need to, buy, uh, to build a pipeline. And we want to bypass Russia and Iran at the mm -hmm. same time. And obviously, Aliyev loved the idea because the pipeline will go from Azerbaijan, from Baku, outside of Baku, essentially, across Georgia and across Russia to Chehan in the Mediterranean. And then from Chehan, you know, cargo tankers going all over the place, especially to the West. So they built BTC. It cost a fortune, cost $3.8 billion, bypassed Iran and uh, Russia. Uh, the Americans saw they had uh, won this uh, particular uh, section of the great game. Uh, and a very important detail, Israel gets 40% of its oil from the BTC. This means that the oil that arrives at the BTC, some of it stays in Turkey, some of it is exported to Europe, and some of it is exported to um, Israel via tankers. Same thing. They go to the Ashkelon port in Israel. So what could uh, a neo-Ottoman uh, Sultan Erdogan do with one phone call? He calls Chehan and said, no more uh, tankers uh, selling or sending or shipping our oil from Chehan to Israel. Did he do that? Of course not. And you won't read about that anywhere. And Erdogan, he can have one 
one million people practically in the streets of Istanbul, like he did a few days ago, and blah, 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 blah just like the OIC meeting. And uh, when it comes to the crunch, which is an actual uh, measure that would be agreed by, I would say, at least most of the Muslim world and Islamic world, except the other ones who also sell oil to Israel. And it could be presented to the uh, to the whole planet as a, a, a practical measure. Nothing happened. So uh, the Iraqis and Iranians before had already said, look, there's no other solution except let's cut off uh, oil from Israel, from all of us producers. Nothing happened. So basically, there were four nations that were against everything serious that was being discussed. First at the Arab uh, summit, and then at the joint Arab OIC summit. And we have the names. We know who they are. Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Morocco. We have to, we have to go one by one. It's very, very important. Because for two of these, this is, is really, really, really big. Because this can explain to all of you in the audience and everybody why are they playing uh, double games all the time? Why are they hedging all the time? Well, Morocco doesn't count much. Morocco, uh, they uh, more or less stabilized their relations with uh, Israel recently. Bahrain doesn't count because Bahrain is a mini vassal. Doesn't count at all. But Saudi Arabia and the Emirates is a completely different ball game because first of all, who is going to be part of BRICS 11 starting in one month and uh, less than one month and 20 days? Oh, my God. It's already the end of the year. Yes, my dear Sarah. That's the key a part of our, of our tale because BRICS 11 starts soon, mm -hmm. January 1st, 2024. And the presidency, as all of you may know, is Russia. Exactly. So, we also know that, personally, not only geostrategically, let's put it this way, the relationship between Putin and MBS is excellent. They are WhatsApp polls, really. Yeah. But it's also very complicated because what did the Americans do and was presented at the latest G7? They officially announced IMEC. Very few people around the world know what IMAC means. It's India Middle East Corridor. This is the official denomination, the official acronym. Mm -hmm. What the acronym does not tell us is who are the key participants of IMAC. Yes. It's not only India Middle East Core. No, it's Europe, mm -hmm. because most of this... Um, uh, oil and gas connectivity is geared towards Europe, so meaning essentially the EU. Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, India in the Indian Ocean, and guess what? Israel. Mm -hmm. So basically, IMAC is what? The is normalization of Israel as a connectivity corridor between Europe, West Asia, and mm -hmm. South Asia. This is beyond enormous. 
because not only this is a direct competitor to the Chinese Belt and Road, the New Silk Roads, but it also elevates Israel to a position that uh, until, uh, I would say, a few months ago, they couldn't even dream about. And that explains, among other reasons, why the genocidal maniac a few weeks ago went to the pulpit of the United Nations and showed one of those Looney Tunes map that the Israelis love, right? And in this map, what did the whole lands of Islam, not to mention the whole global south, not to mention the, the UN Assembly General, what did they see? No Palestine. It was Israel in blue and the Arab neighbors in um, yellowish, orangish. No Palestine at all. And this was built as their official terminology, the new Middle East. So what was uh, Bibi doing at the UN? He was showing from an Israeli, American-Israeli point of view, what is the future of uh, Southwest Asia? Forget about Middle East. I, 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 myself and many others and uh, the cradle where, where I, I am part of in Beirut, we never use the expression Middle East. We always use West Asia or Southwest Asia because this is, this is, this is what this region is all about, right? So you have the UN legitimizing and normalizing all that, uh, basically erasing Palestine off the map in front of a global audience. And this happened only a few weeks before October 7, Al-Aqsa flood. But before Al-Aqsa flood, something very, very important also happened, which is also that something that completely disappeared from the narrative, especially in the West. What happened on September 20? I'm sure many of you will have no idea. On September 20, in the White House, Bibi Netanyahu met in person with Joe Biden's earpiece. This is extremely crucial to understand what happened uh, afterwards, especially October 7. So we're talking about September 20. This means what, less than three weeks before October 7. So, and this happened after BB showing the map at the UN. So what happened at the Oval Office this day, which is something that you won't read in the official White House readout. But this is what really happened. And when you talk to Washington insiders, even laterally or in an undergroundish way, they confirm it. Yeah, this is what they discussed. There's no question about that. Well, they discussed three very, very important issues. First of all, IMAC, because that, that was already announced. And the Israelis say, okay, uh, but the problem, there's a lot of infrastructure problems. Uh, the, the Saudis and the Emirates, they have to build a lot of highways, uh, railways, etc. Uh, you know, modernization of ports and all that. So this is a very long-term project. They talked about another angle, which is extremely crucial. And this is the angle that the Americans have been cultivating since the 1960s. And now it's going to be revived. And many people, until a few days ago, didn't even know about it. The Ben... Gurion Canal. What is the Ben Gurion Canal? It's a canal from the Gulf of Aqaba to the Eastern Mediterranean to basically 
take off the Suez Canal off the map or you know, give it a secondary uh, role in terms of uh, a naval connectivity and transport of energy in Southwest Asia. Southwest Asia, exactly. So they discussed the Ben-Gurion Canal, etc. And obviously, BB said, look, we have a serious problem because according to the, uh, the trajectory of the canal, uh, it will go more or less uh, to the Eastern Mediterranean where uh, Gaza is. So I said, look, we have to get rid of those people in Gaza. Uh, I, I'm paraphrasing, but this is more or less the tone of the conversation. You can imagine. Don't forget that he was not—he was talking to a crash test dummy. So he was talking to the earpiece. And the guys in the... Of, of course, we can assume that Jake Sullivan was in the room. And we can also assume that Blinken was in the room. But the others were not in the room. So thus the earpiece, right? So this means a solution for Gaza, and specifically North Gaza. And it's not by accident that the, what, what we're seeing in front of us, the, the genocide in motion on every smartphone, is taking place in isolated North Gaza. Because according to all, all the, the legalistic uh, framework of uh, the offshore oil and gas reserves that were discovered in that part of the Eastern Mediterranean, the Palestinian reserves are in front of North Gaza, essentially, offshore, right? And another very, very important point, the concessions, they end next year, the current concessions for British gas to exploit it. And starting next year, when the concessions are going to be renewed, there is a very strong possibility that uh, uh, the government in Gaza could sell these concessions to Gazprom. And I confirmed this with the Russians. Yes, it's true. We, it, 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 we don't know what's going to happen, but yes, we are. Well, we, we, we made an offer already. You know. So you have you know, everything set up perfectly from the point of view of the Americans and Israelis to organize a mega diversion, in fact, uh, let's say uh, increase the possibility of uh, having a final solution, and I don't quote it lightheartedly. It's very, very serious. It's this current Israeli government's final solution for the Palestine problem. Uh, but, don't, but don't forget, we're talking about what was being discussed before our acts of flawed. And that implies something extremely important that obviously we will never have any confirmation from anybody, even the best informed intel analysts in West Asia, in the US, or everywhere else. That the Israeli government knew that something was afoot in uh, in Gaza. They didn't know what in detail. And obviously they didn't know what because they were stunned by the sophistication of the whole operation. And even Sheikh Nasrallah in his first speech, not the one last Friday, the one before, he said, we didn't know about it. The Iranians also said, we didn't know about it. In fact, this was coordinated by the Palestinian resistance. We don't know if this was only, there's no confirm, definitive confirmation. If this was only Hamas, if this was Hamas 
uh, Islamic Jihad, uh, Front for the Liberation of Palestine, everybody together. Probably there was a coordination as well, but this was a Hamas operation. It was a scape raid. It was, uh, uh, I'm sure many of you will remember that famous uh, escape from prison with Steve McQueen uh, eons ago. Yes, that was a, a similar a similar thing, but okay, we need to capture some prisoners, and then we exchange the prisoners that we capture with the over 5,000 Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails, in many cases, for years. So, what was discussed on September 20 was, I would say, the preamble for, okay, if anything happens over there, the earpiece told Bibi, Okay, you can do anything you want, as long as it's not too hardcore. Don't go a highway to hell ACDC on them, which is exactly what they're doing, because they don't listen to anybody, right? So, so this was already settled on September 20. We got October 7, and now it's already proven with evidence, video evidence everywhere, that the Israelis shot against their own citizens on October 7 fully documented. And of course, but, but from their point of view, from the point of view of the general maniac genocidal government in place in Israel at, at the moment, the, the conditions were created to implement phase two, which is the final solution for Palestine. That's where we are now. We don't know how this thing will derail, which in many aspects is already derailing. We have inform unconfirmed information that the Palestinians are hitting a lot of Israeli weaponry over there. And a lot of Israelis are being killed. And one, uh, what, who was it? It was a reporter, it was an Israeli reporter. He was absolutely summarized, excluded from everything, because he actually went there and he showed the bodies of, of killed Israelis, right? So, uh, and the most complicated part at this stage is, will they have, will the BB government, the BB war cabinet have the guts to actually expand this war to the Northern Front where they know that they have no chance of winning against Hezbollah? We don't know, no, no, but nobody knows this answer. I, I'm sure not even the Americans know this answer. Uh, they are in panic because they don't want it, because they know they already gained it, and they know that Hezbollah is going to be drastic, to say the least. But the, uh, and now we're getting to the, let's say, the, the larger framework, the big picture of our, of our tale. Who is this war against? It's not only a war against civilians in Gaza, which it is at the moment. It's not only a war, it's, which is not even a war, uh, I would say a live massacre of Palestinian civilians, especially children, in front of the whole horrifying world to see, which it is as well. The big picture shows us that this is a war against some very specific geopolitical actors. The first one, BRICS-11 which starts in a month and a half from now. It's against uh, the global South as a whole. And it's against the lens of Islam as a whole. 
And this is something that those leaders that met this past weekend in Saudi Arabia, many of them didn't understand or many of them were cowardly enough to admit it. We had, for instance, very, very strong speeches by Raisi from Iran, by Assad from Syria, by the Algerians, etc. And from these who were hedging their bets and the ones who vetoed a really forceful action against, against the, the ongoing genocide, and especially those two who are members of IMAC, Saudi Arabia and, and the Emirates, we didn't have anything. And it's no wonder that they blocked because they're still hedging their bets. And uh, why, uh, uh, many of you will be asking why they're hedging their bets. Okay, the short answer is follow the money. Where is most of the money of these people? MBS circle and MBZ circle. New York and London. So that explains it all. So they will continue to hedge their bets. And they still think that IMEC could be a super deal for them. And obviously, they are uh, gangsterish enough to stab the Chinese on the back and stab BRICS 11 on the back. Don't forget that they are members of BRICS 11 because the Russians and the Chinese lobbied heavily to have them on BRICS 11. Their first option in uh, West Asia was Iran because Russia and China both have a strategic partnership, each of them with Iran. And the second option was uh, Saudi Arabia and Emirates, because of, in the case of Saudi Arabia, especially from a Russian point of view, because of OPEC+. Plus. So don't forget that we are, you are, all of us, all of them and all of us, they are dealing with gangsters, with mafiosi. MBZ and MBS cannot be trusted for anything. You cannot buy a baguette from them. Sorry. You cannot, <laughs> buy, you cannot buy a kebab from these guys. <laughs> literally. Literally. It's going to be a rotten kebab, right? So, and I'm sure our Russian friends, they know it very well. I'm not so sure about the Chinese, but, and this would, okay, we would start a long conversation on how the Chinese sometimes bet on wrong horses in different latitudes because they, they don't understand cultural details. Unfortunately. Right. So this is a war. The charade that we are seeing in front of us is disguising this war against BRICS Plus. Uh, it's disguising the fact that this is a very well, I wouldn't say well concerted, but I would say a sort of desperation role by the Americans when they look at the timetable and what do they see? even in their spheres of influence. They see that they are being expelled little by little, slowly but surely from Eurasia as a whole. They see that uh, the start of BRICS 11 is a mega game changer in terms of connectivity corridors and in terms of uh, uh, commerce and tra uh, trading of energy. They see that the de-dollarization movement is picking up speed all over the world, literally different levels. And they see that uh, what is happening nowadays in terms of the ongoing genocide live for everyone to see is coalescing some sort of union 
in the inside the Arab world and uh, including all the lands of Islam. We saw this past weekend that this is far from happening. It may have already started, but the problem is if you don't get rid of some of these leaderships in all these nations, it will never happen. But this is a, what is understood, I would say viscerally by global public opinion all across the global south, is that this is a desperate war by the empire against the global south. And this is personified by BRICS-11. It's personified by uh, vast sections of the Islamic world. And this reveals, uh, among other things, and that's the good part of it in terms of how to exploit it, how absolutely desperate they are. So at the moment, they have, uh, I would say, a two-pronged strategy, which they are, build, they are building as they go. Uh, our usual suspect uh, hegemonic friends. In South America, their strategy relies on an absolutely demented character in Argentina, which they're betting is going to win the next Argentinian <laughs> elections. Exactly, Millet, which is it, it's it's an unqualifiable, stupid uh, character. Totally. I'm I'm Argentinian. I co-sign this message. <laughs> I'm sure you do, Yara, of course. Anybody with, uh, I would say, half a functioning brain all over Argentina and among the Argentinian diaspora knows that. The problem is the massive brainwashing campaign, massive and extremely wealthy brainwashing campaign going on in Argentina for months now, to try to get Millet to win these next elections. And don't forget that they can, uh, if, if push comes to shove, they can even steal the elections. We, we, know, we don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, considering the last debate, we could say that Massa wins based on the debate alone, but debates don't win elections. We all know that. So this you, is- You touched on this, um, uh, sorry to, to interrupt. I go, agree go ahead, to stay. Go ahead. I really wanted to stay on this melee point because, you know, in one of your recent tweets that I that I uh, I looked at, you touched on the the regional dynamics in Latin America, the broader context of you know BRICS countries uh, aligning with OPEC and so on and so forth. We we know that just on the point of Argentina, you know, Argentina is suffering from uh, you know the highest rates of inflation in the world. I think now um, we obviously have a huge amount of debt to the IMF, and uh, we we have a bunch of account deficits. It's a whole, I think we're going to see a, a currency collapse very, very soon. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> so mentioning Millet's election here, how uh, do, how could the political developments and also the Brazil-Argentina relations here uh, influence the broader uh, political context um, as well in terms of BRICS and the BRICS nations? It's a, it's a very good question, Yara, because this points to, uh, once again, a desperate divide and rule tactic. To uh, and uh, dividing rule applied straight against the two most important South American countries, economic Brazil and Argentina. So they have the perfect Trojan horse to basically start yelling, "I'm going to cut break uh, relations between Brazil and Argentina. I'm going to uh, I'm going to dollarize the economy uh, the day after uh, I'm elected." And I'm going to be out of bricks. 
Like it's so blatantly obvious who profits from this gambit. They don't even try to disguise it. The only thing that they have, and we all know, especially all of us who who were born, raised, and know the global south from the inside, apart from knowing the, the, the global north, we know how it works. And it's always the same modus operandi. And in the case of Argentina this time, they uh, look, uh, tactically, they are on the verge of having a major victory. If this happens, from the point of view of the empire, of chaos, lies, plunder, etc., it will be a major tactical victory, equivalent to the tactical victory of cutting off Russia from Europe, which is the only vic tactical victory that the Americans have so far in terms of the proxy war in Ukraine. It's huge. It's enormous. If they have Millet as president of Argentina, this will be, uh, you know, they'll be doubling down. But this is only one part of the two-pronged strategy. The most important part is Israel. The most important part is uh, trying to sell to the world the fiction that they are controlling Israeli rage while they are implementing what was discussed in detail in the first place, which is what, uh, which was the beginning of our tale today. So this is the two-pronged strategy. So we're going to see in a few days if it succeeds in Argentina. And in terms of Israel, if it succeeds in, uh, once again, in the words of Bibi himself, two Arab leaders and Islamic re readers, shut up. <laughs> this, this is what he said yesterday. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> in front of the whole planet. It's, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable. And there's no response from anybody. And after that, if you don't have anything practical for, uh, coming, uh, for the moment, it's only coming from the axis of resistance, as all of you know. It's coming from the ultra badass Ansarula. You can never mess with the Houthis. These are the original badasses, you know. And major respect, because they are actually at war against Israel even if their missiles are intercepted by orders of uh, uh, Riyadh or Amman, it doesn't matter. They are implicated. They are trying to do something practical. The axis of resistance, especially militias in Syria and that uh, galaxy of militias in Iraq, Hashd al-Shabi and uh, every, they are also doing their bit, attacking American installations. Excellent. Hezbollah on the border, uh, which is horrible. I went to this border four years ago and I actually saw for the first time the new wall built by the Israelis with help from the UN separating southern Lebanon from occupied Palestine all the way to the triple border uh, on the hills, Syria, occupied Palestine and, uh, and Lebanon. Uh, they are doing that because they are attacking communication installations by the multi-billion dollar towers of communication and surveillance by Israel mm -hmm. on the board. So this is also very important. So these are the only ones who are actually doing something. And of course, in the background, Iranian support, because all that is happening conceptually was drawn, designed, and taught 
among leaders of the axis of resistance by none other than General Soleimani. So what we are seeing in front of us is once again the immeasurable influence, tactical, strategic, conceptual, historical, cultural of General Soleimani. Is anybody apart from the axis of resistance doing anything practical against the, the genocide? Nothing, absolutely nothing. And that's why what happened this past weekend for all of us with a brain all over the world, it was beyond appalling. It was extremely depressing. Nothing that, it's not that we were expecting something different, but it only confirms what all of us already know about most of these leaders with a few exceptions. Uh, I would I, I would have as exceptions, for instance, because I think he was as appalled as everybody else, but he had to be very careful with Dodo from Indonesia, from instance. The Algerians with at least introduced a series of very uh, a series of very serious measures, right? And you know, very very Syria, very few exceptions. So uh, in terms of uh, BB going live and saying, shut up. This is humiliation on top of humiliation. It, 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 it's uh, it, the mind boggles. And they can get away with it. And he can say that and get away with it. We, we know why. And he, we know who supports him. And we know who's also behind them in the shade because they are chihuahuas, the European Union, mm -hmm. with the toxic Medusa on front, uh, in, the, in the front lines. So, so this is where we are at the moment. It, it, it is a, an inflection point in our tale. Uh, I wouldn't say uh, if we go back to Tolstoy and Bondarchuk that we're going to have a <laughs> battle of Borodino in front of us, which uh, would be a very, very strong possibility if the genocide continues and if the Israeli rabbit dog is let, completely let loose by the American masters, by the way. Because this would be the perfect way to set the whole of West Asia on fire. And we should never forget that conceptually, setting West Asia on fire is the overarching uh, strategy by the dwindling empire. Because West Asia is an absolutely key node of Eurasia integration of the Belt and Roads and of the union of Eurasia with the Arab world and Islamic lands as well in terms of trade connectivity and further on down the road uh, undermining the petrodollar. So what we are living now, uh, once again, it's very, very important. It's a desperation strategy. It's not that they think strategically long term. We should never forget especially the people who are in power now in Washington, they don't do strategy. They do, at best, business plans. And these business plans involve, uh, you know, tactics on the fly. This is what they do. They are incapable of thinking strategically, and especially thinking strategically in terms of preserving actual strong uh, uh, American national interests in terms of not antagonizing now 88, 89% of the whole planet, which is exactly what they're doing. No, they, because they are hostages of the Straussian neocon cycles, which are embedded in every instance of the Beltway, you know, everywhere in Washington, Virginia, Maryland, think tanks, media, you name it. 
it's impo it's absolutely impossible and to get rid of them in a flash is also absolutely impossible so what is the best that we can hope under i would say the dire circumstances now is not to have a 21st century replay of the battle of borodino which by the way napoleon lost <laughs> and we are not we're not sure if the if the new uh, epigones of napoleon the usual suspects we don't know how they would perform because don't forget that among them we have a lot of doctor strange loves napoleon didn't have a he was not a doctor strange love just wanted to win uh, a battle on the field between men and this there's a, an extra coming back to the to our movie there's an extraordinary scene where general kotuzov who won against napoleon fascinating one-eyed guy, older, you know, he liked to eat well in the middle of the battle. And then there was an emissary coming. Look, we are fucked all over the, the front. And he said, man, nah, 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 it's not going to happen. Wait, wait. And in the end, obviously, he was right. And he said, look, this is, they are men. We are also men. We are all brothers here. This is a, a battlefield. So we have to treat them well. Uh, we just need to tell them, look, you came here uninvited, so now it's, it's time for you to go. Leave. We simply cannot see this happening today of the Americans basically telling their occupied lands all over the planet. They say, yeah, we understand that we are here. We were uninvited, so we, we'll, we'll decide to leave ourselves. Or the occupied people have enough firepower to tell the Americans, look, now it's time to leave. For the moment, the only ones who are actually doing something, once again, is the axis of resistance. So we are very, very far away from something that would be remotely similar to Napoleon just, you know, wagging his tail and going back through the steps back to France, defeated. Well, you are. I, I'm going to ask you. So we had Dugan uh, two days ago. And we yes, wanted... I saw it. Yeah. <laughs> and we wanted to ask him some of this, ask you some of the same kind of line of questioning that we asked him and some stuff that we didn't get to because it's better suited to you anyway. But I did want to touch on the, because um, we talked about Argentina, maybe yes. being like that cornerstone or, or that that hole in, or that plug in the dike. But we have Bolivia, Colombia, and Chile all making a really, um, oh, nice mug, by the way. <laughs> ah, the, the, uh, the... I don't know if I introduced you to all of you. <laughs> this is the ultimate Donetsk mug. <laughs> and there's only one way for all of you to get this mug. Go to Donetsk. There you go. You cannot even find it in Moscow. It doesn't exist. It only exists in Donetsk. So, salute a tutti. <laughs> is our Bolivia, Chile, and Colombia enough of a counterweight um, in in the in Latin America to hold on to those that line of of chastising Israel? Because Bolivia has now cut ties with Israel twice. Yes, and so and Chile recalled their ambassador, and Colombia took an incredibly hard stance at the UN, calling it one of the first to call it a genocide, which was amazing at the UN. But you have then we talked about Argentina, which could kind of make the whole thing fall apart. It could be the string yeah. from the sweater. So 
are those three going to be enough of a counterbalance? Will we see Venezuela maybe join in or Brazil and kind uh, of Venezuela? I would say Venezuela could join Sarah. Brazil is an extremely complex case. This is uh, uh, I I cannot get into detail for 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 many reasons. The first one is that I'm not there and. To try to see what's going on in Brazil when you're not there is absolutely impossible. The country is too complex. Uh, everything is clashing against everything else all the time. But what I get from uh, my best friends, and, and, and some of them are sources as well, is that Lula is more or less isolated in the middle of uh, the whole <laughs> I would say a cascade of horrors around him, including internationally. He already said himself that this is a genocide and something must be done about it. This is not uh, the vision of uh, most of his government, or at least a great deal of his government. It may be the view of the majority of, the, of Brazilian public opinion. This is very, so he's fully attuned to Brazilian public opinion. But uh, in terms of navigating geopolitically this whole uh, empire strategy of creating divide and rule everywhere, he has to be very careful because he's one of the main targets. Personally, not only the Brazilian government, as it was uh, from 2010, the Dilma government, and then Lula himself, the whole car wash operation, etc. Lula is a personal target of the Americans and he's being kept, I would say metaphorically on a leash. Of course, nobody keeps Lula on a leash and he knows that. And, but and as soon as he, as he finds leeway to say something that is really, really forceful, he does. So he, he remains the Lula that we all know and knew from for, for decades, right? But his margin of maneuver is extremely slim. I would say that he would have more of a margin of maneuver when BRICS 11 starts. Uh, but there are many, many extra problems, which is the quality of his cabinet, which is, uh, I'll be very blunt, it's not exactly brilliant, to say the <laughs> least. You, I, I'm sure all of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the fact that the extreme right is still extremely powerful, the fact that evangelicals, the extreme right, this uh, uh, concoction of evangelicals, extreme right, and a uh, rabid Zionists, and you name it all together, it's very, very powerful in Brazil everywhere. Special, not, I, I would not say uh, in Brasilia, yes, in Brasilia, of course, but especially in Sao Paulo, which is the seat of financial power. Uh, this is where I was born, so I know how Sao Paulo works. It hasn't changed much since I was born. So uh, it, 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 if you drop a few names, you know that these people are behind everything toxic happening in Brazil. And it hasn't changed much. The families are still the same. And you have a new nouveau riche, you know, but in the end, it's the same story. So Lula has to be extremely careful. Uh, some very well-informed Brazilians say, look, the Americans are just waiting for the right moment to kick him out and get their men in government. This is also, of course, one possible scenario. And obviously, Lula is very much aware of this scenario as well. So 
In terms of uh, BRICS 11, this might change a little bit. Uh, the fact that he remains extremely popular is very, very important. The fact that he remains internationally recognized as a leader of the global south is also very important. So the Americans cannot do anything uh, blatant against him. But uh, he is in a very insecure position, to say the least. You know. So th this is the short version. I'm sure all of you will understand what I cannot say in public. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, I do want to ask you about BRICS as a whole. So um, we know our listeners hopefully know that BRICS is an economic alliance, uh, not a military alliance. But yes. uh, war and economics go hand in hand. So um, at, is, is it morally acceptable for BRICS to pursue a peaceful course to achieve their goals uh, while civilians are in a, a, like their strategic country? So like say like like Syria is under attack. Syria is likely going to be a candidate for BRICS in the future. We already have Iran and Saudi Arabia who could get embroiled in this war, all uh, planning to be in BRICS in 2024. Uh -huh. uh, does it ever become BRICS's obligation to step in and try to prevent that from happening um, because it has such grave economic consequences for the plans that they already had? And if so, what do China and Russia do in that instance? Because I, I don't, I'm sure you agree, but I see them as the leaders of BRICS, uh, probably. Yes, uh, uh, absolutely, Sarah. They are the de facto leader of BRICS and the de facto leaders of uh, BRICS 11 of expanding uh, towards BRICS 11 and probably this year BRICS 15, 18, or maybe even BRICS 20 uh, before or during the summit in Kazan uh, late uh, next year. Uh, in, term, in terms of uh, uh, never expect BRICS to have a military role. That's not the point. As you should not expect, all of you around the world, you should not expect the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to have a military role, at least in the short to medium term. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization is, this is very, very important because they will be merging sooner rather than later, or maybe in the medium term. The key problem inside BRICS and inside the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, I'm sure I don't have to spell it out to all of you, is India. Unfortunately, and this is something that you confirm when you talk to Russian analysts, to Chinese analysts, to Iranian analysts, and even to some independent Indian analysts as well. Because when we talk about India, it's not you know, that enormous framework. No, it's the Modi government, the people around Modi, the people Modi uh, is trying to seduce all the time. Uh, let's say the nouveau riche business classes in India and the Hindutva anti-Muslim fanatics. So this is an enormous problem. And of course, going deeper, uh, the absolutely stratospheric inferiority complex of the Indian ruling classes vis-a-vis -vis the white man. This is something very, very hard to say, but I prefer to say it bluntly. All, 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 all of us or all of you who have been to India, you can see that in front of you. It's changing little by little, but it's changing in a very perverse way because in many cases, the inferiority complex 
in terms of, uh, you know, being subjugated by the white man is being transferred to intolerance vis-a-vis the Muslim population. This is absolutely horrible. It's, uh, so I, I would say this is one strand, of course. It's, uh, the majority of the population, they don't even think about uh, The majority of the Indian population is basically uh, preoccupied with survival. And I'm not joking about that. I'm talking about at least 600 to 700 million people. India is still an extremely poor and backward country if you get out of the big urban centers. If you go, for instance, to uh, Patna, you know, if you, if you go to deep India, wow, it's nothing much changed even... Uh, considering the economic miracle that started maybe in the late 90s. But the problem is, uh, with a government like Modi's, and considering his constituency, and considering the toxic Hindutva elements around, it's very hard to see how they can accommodate China, especially, and China inside SEO and BRICS, and Pakistan inside the SEO, especially because they see Pakistan as a vassal of China, which is not the case. They are economic partners. It's different. And that explains, among other things, why Modi and his government is always extremely reticent in uh, 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 normalizing relations with China, economic relations, trade relations inside the BRICS. Or even worse, very simple things, accepting to trade in yuan. The Russians already told, they sent the message to the Indians, look, okay, you're buying a lot of our oil, fantastic. But what are we going to do with this pile of rupees? Nobody wants a pile of rupees, you know. So they're trying to find a way for the Russians to spend these rupees or at least, you know, buy something with these rupees because India doesn't have anything to sell. Uh, they are buying uh, energy like crazy. That's a completely different story. So, and they refuse, of course, to have their uh, settlement payments in yuan. So, you, as long as you don't solve these problems inside BRICS, for instance, the progress uh, of the the multilateral organization as as a whole is seriously compromised. And inside the SEO. It's complicated because India is still hedging their bets in terms of, uh, okay, we are members of the Quad, and now we're going to be members of IMAC. This is the absolute opposite of what the Russians and the Chinese are doing, where they are little by little, slowly but, but surely, integrating projects of BRI, the New Silk Roads, and the Eurasia Economic Organization, the Eurasia Economic Union, I'm sorry. This is something I will see in Moscow uh, again in a few days. I'll, I'll be back in Moscow in two weeks. And, I'm all, and I always talk to the Eurasian Economic uh, Union people while, while I'm there. And they tell me in detail the problems inside these multilateral organizations, especially in terms of coordinating economic policy and the drive towards de-dollarization or even the drive to uh, settle uh, trade in bilateral currencies. It's extremely complicated uh, dossier, all of that. And it's all interlinked. So uh, be, uh, to cut the story short, the spoiler in all 
these interactions is India. And the Americans know it. And the Americans, of course, they, are, they keep sending uh, an enormous amount of carrots to the Indians to bring them to the hegemon camp. And the latest one is exactly IMAC. But when the Indians look at how long will it take to have IMAC working for their Indian benefit, you have to build a thousand kilometers of highways over here. You have to modernize port over there. And all that. They say, this is not going to work. But they cannot say that to the Americans. And also because they have their own connectivity corridor, which is the International North-South Transportation Corridor, the INSTC, which is Russia. Iran and India as the main partners. And that's also anathema for, guess who? The hegemon. The problem is they cannot disturb this directly. They cannot create problems inside Russia. Okay, to a large extent, they, they can have skirmishes. They cannot attack Iran directly, although they would love to, the straws in their comp cycles. And obviously they have to protect their Indian investment on. But when the INSTC will be fully functioning, example, uh, you charge something in uh, Moscow uh, or St. Petersburg, it goes to Astrakhan, the Russian port in the Caspian, it crosses the Caspian by ship, it gets to the Iranian uh, shore of the Caspian, it crosses Iran by road or railway, it arrives at the Persian Gulf of the Gulf of Oman, and then is sent by tankers to India. When this thing is fully functioning both ways, wow. In, ter in terms of a connectivity corridor of a, let's say, a parallel Silk Road with the three main uh, players, uh, Russia, India, and Iran, you know, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Uh, so that's that, so expect the Americans trying to do something to disturb this in the, I would say, medium to long term. So I have a, a final question for you today, Pepe. You mentioned in, yes. in one of your articles uh, that the two-state solution is dead, right? And there's this reluctance to admit this. So my question for you is why Why do you think, first of all, people hesitate to acknowledge uh, the end of the two-state solution? And also, what do you envision as the next steps for the conflict? How, how would regional dynamics kind of evolve in the absence of that two-state framework? Well, if... Can you imagine the Chinese openly? Chinese diplomacy, as you all know, is usually reactive. It started to become active, I would say, in the past two to three years, but it's carefully calculated to the millimeter. So their official position was always two-state solution for Palestine. They cannot turn this upside down, even when confronted with, I would say, a, a cartographic proof. Look at the map. Can you have a two-state solution? Obviously not. Everybody knows that. But the Chinese, of course, they are gradually trying, at least understand. First of all, this is not their war. It's too far away. The only thing that matters to the Chinese is, once again, connectivity corridors. That's it. They are not going to get enmeshed in a war in the middle. No way. And, they, and even posing as mediators because they don't have it. They don't have it. The Russians have it. The Russians can't do it because the Russians are still respected by Israel 
for a number of enormous number of reasons. But basically, more than 1 million Russian speakers in Israel, double nationality, double passports, business back and forth, oligarchs, uh, money back and forth, the whole, you, you name it, right? Uh, the Jewish lobby inside Russia, etc. But at least Russia could, I would say, in a, I would say a very ideal scenario, be uh, the mediator for a new West Asia arrangement respected by everybody in the Arab world, there's no question about that, respected by Iran and also respected by Israel. But obviously the Americans will be the first to say, no way, they will destroy the new chessboard immediately, like the pigeons that they are, right? So uh, we, we, we cannot expect, expect this to happen. But we have, uh, waiting in the wings, a possible credible mediator for everything in West Asia. China, no, China is always in the back. Uh, like, you know, the best example this past year or so, for instance, I, I, I never cease to stress that because it's very important. People should know that this rapprochement between Israel, uh, between, uh, I'm sorry, Saudi Arabia and Iran, which was clinched in Beijing by the Chinese, the Russians started the whole thing. The Russians start talking separately with the Iranians and the Saudis via third country emissaries uh, in Oman, in Iraq, etc. So this went on very, very slowly. Then one day, they sit on the same table in Moscow, the Iranians and Saudi Arabia. So when the Russians saw that this thing was uh, starting to become fruitful, they volleyball. The ball goes to the other side of the court. The Chinese pick it up. The Chinese finalized the agreement and the Chinese announced it. So this is Russia-China strategic partnership on the diplomatic level, working at the highest level. It's fascinating to watch, just like it is fascinating to watch their bilaterals. If it's Lavrov and Wang Yi, or if it's Xi with Putin like the last time, you know, it's, everything is millimetrically calculated, but they get along because they understand each other. It, it's a, when the Chinese describe it as a comprehensive strategic partnership, that's what it is, because they discuss everything in minute detail. That's how it is. And obviously for West Asia, it has to be. None of them wants to be part of or get inside this hot one. No way. But uh, the Chinese see that the Russians in the forefront and themselves in the back, they could be accepted by all parties as credible mediators. But always comes back to the irrational side in the equation. The pigeons will destroy the chessboard. If there is a, you know, a minimum possibility of this thing being accepted by all the players in, in the region. Well, I know you don't have a lot of time, but I, I want to ask you where you're going next and what you're going to do. Yes, uh, I sh I'm sure uh, many of you will be interested because I'll be in Moscow in two weeks for something very big. I, I prefer that it happens first and then, I'll, and then I'll tell everybody, right? And after that, I'll go to Kazakhstan. Again? Yes! <laughs> I have to. Uh, it's part of my job. I have to go to Central Asia at least twice a year. I know, see... but you just went. No, I was in Uzbekistan in uh, August. It's different. It's different because the, 
um, it's uh, these are the two most important uh, of the five Central Asian stands, right? So you have to go there to see first of all what's happening on the ground, second what's in the you know made in the shade, and in the case of Kazakhstan, it's even more complicated because uh, I'm sure all of you saw how Le Petit Roi, the guys who theoretically runs uh, this country, I mean now. He went to Kazakhstan a while ago. He didn't get anything. He was trying to get cheap energy that he cannot get from uh, a Niger anymore. And guess who was there last week? Vladimir himself sat down with Tokayev. Tokayev went to the airport to pick him up at the airport okay. in person. They had wonderful conversations. Our strategic relationship is going fine. It's uh, proceeding comfortably in the words of, of Putin. But it's much more complicated than that. And obviously, uh, they don't say that out loud. So you have to go there and get the actors uh, in the corridors. Okay, well, what's really going on here? Are they, is this a multi-vector diplomacy, which uh, Kazakhstan is very fa famously doing it since the Nazarbayev years, or the Americans have a bridgehead here and they're going to take over, or they're going to uh, start a new color revolution like the one they started in the beginning of last year. So it's an extremely complex because Kazakhstan is key to everything that is happening because it's one of the key Eurasian integration partners. Kazakhstan is part of BRICS. Oh, I'm, sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, part of BRI, BRI is part of the New Silk Roads. It's part of the Eurasia Economic Union. It's part of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Maybe next year is going to be part of BRICS, expanded BRICS as well. So they are at the center of everything. He has enormous, massive uh, natural resources. So everybody is looking at them. And they have a very, very uh, complementary rela relationship with Russia and China. But they also have very good relations with the Americans as well. And the American majors are all there exploit. Uh, Exploring oil, uh, Chevron, ExxonMobil, everybody's there. So it's a key country to. We have to go to Kazakhstan all the time <laughs> to see what's going on. You know. So this is what's going to happen before the the end of this year. And next year, of course, the focus is going to be BRICS 11 and everything that can they can do practically to. I would say uh, bring a modicum of peace to the world nowadays, the world that is being destabilized completely by the scared-to-death hegemonic elites. Kegavarish Paruski? Oh, yes, but my, my Russian is very minimalistic. I understand it very well, but because I haven't spoken in ages, like, you know, during Bondarchuk's movie, I, I, was, I was picking up some of it. But, but, but then you get, if, if you don't practice, you get lost. <laughs> oh, that, that's, a, that's a tough one. I'm glad you brought up Central Asia, though, because that's a region that no, that's a forgotten region. And it's so important. It's so important. Right Sarah, it's, it's not forgotten uh, uh, across Eurasia. It's forgotten in the West. In, in the West, people cannot even point to these countries on a map. Try, <laughs> try to get an American to point Tajikistan on a map. It's not going to happen. <laughs> no, they can't even point. Paris. They thought Ukraine was in Australia. So we're, 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 we're <laughs> over well. here. Um, but, <laughs> oh, we've got Pepe. When are you going to join us for a chat on DD Spaces? 
Do you know how to do spaces? Pepe? No, I don't. What is DD spaces? My space. Our spaces. <laughs> so we have we have spaces, and with all the big guns like you and Elijah came and talked to us. The ambassador of Russia came and talked to us. Excellent. You should come because you're like the you're like a party. You're like a, and, a, and it would be a really fun Q and A. And okay, all right. Look, let's let's try to do this uh, maybe in December while I am uh, you know yeah, it's running not, around. It's yes. informal. Whenever you're like, I can pop in and have a chat. It's it's not yes, a, fantastic. It's, yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Yes, of course, of course. Well, I don't know how to like like go out on this. It's Pepe. He doesn't even need an extra an outro. <laughs> Follow him, follow him on X, find him on the cradle, find him in Central Asia. Who knows? Maybe NATO Stan. You, you never know where Pepe is going to show Nate, up. No, uh, look, I, t I tell you, all of you, the audience, it sucks in NATO Stan. Really. <laughs> NATO Stan. It, it sucks. The only good thing of being in Paris, of course, is the gastronomic front. That's another story entirely. But apart from that, I, I'm holed up at home. I only go out to talk to my butcher, my Italian <laughs> providers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, the guy, the guy who sells me lettuce. You know, I have wonderful conversations on the ground level because they tell me what's really happening in Paris on the ground level. It's fantastic. But apart from that, you cannot have a political discussion here. What is happening in Paris? What is happening in Paris on the ground? And like, they they were in such tumult before all of this even started because of the Africa stuff. And a lot, a lot of places got touched by that, that stuff. But, but France definitely did maybe even lost its footing. And is it still kind of in flux and kind of crazy over there? Uh, look, I don't even, I, uh, to tell you the truth, Sarah, I, I'm not even interested in, in the, in the Good. political situation. Yeah. Stick with I'm, the bread. I'm, I'm, I'm interested. I'm, I'm always interested to see how Parisians live and how do they cope? Because this is, one of the most neurasthenic cities on the planet and the most expensive, apart from Tel Aviv or which was the other one, not, not even Hong Kong. It's the most expensive city on the planet. I, I don't know how people survive here. It, it, it's, it's demented. And, and something that started this year, which I never saw before, I actually see inflation in front of me like I am in the global south and not in one of the most in one of the wealthiest countries in the global north. Yeah. And I talk about that with my providers, my 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 friends all the time. They say, "Ah, you have no idea. We have ladies coming here and saying they cannot afford to buy anything anymore. So they buy a, you know, a, a risotto and that's it or two or three vegetables. That's it. It has to last a week." Mhm. Mm it's mind-boggling to see this here. Look, this is not Turkey where they have a what two hundred percent inflation. You know, uh, it's not Venezuela. It's and and it's something that never happened before. So so life here, even for people who have lived here forever, is extremely extremely hard. And obviously, a lot of Parisians are abandoning Paris because they cannot afford to live in Paris anymore. So, you know, you have whole neighborhoods that are being taken over by uh, investment funds. And then they sell it to rich uh, Arabs or rich uh, Qataris, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, it, it's, it's very sad. Very, yeah, that's very, all of very, Europe very now. It's yeah. unfortunate. That's why I'm uh, moving to And Brazil. in Germany, it's even worse. Nah? My German friends say that, <laughs> no, Germany is off the charts. 
Can we Definitely. end on, Can we try to end on a happier note? And it's been it's happier... been so great oh, talking God. to you. But honestly, uh, wow, happy, happy, happier note at this moment. Wow! Look, can I make a recommendation to all of you guys in our audience? Read the Stoics. Even if you don't read the classical Stoics, read Marcus Aurelius. He will appease you a little bit. You know, read a little bit of Seneca. You know, I, I'm, I'm trying to do that. Uh, and when I'm here, I'm, I'm so far away from Asia because in my mind, I'm always in Asia. No? But in Asia, you are close to Buddhism. You're close to the Tao. And it's, it's very easy when you are in Asia to practice this and even in your everyday life. Here in the West, it's completely different. And here we are under pressure all the time. And in our profession of trying to decode what's going on, it's even worse, you know. So uh, I'm, I'm finding some solace reading our great friend Marcus Aurelius. You know, I recommend it to all of you. Well, there you go, Marcus Aurelius. Thank you once again, Pepe. Stick around for the afterwards, and we will see you guys in a space. We don't know who the guest is this weekend. It's a wild card. You guys will be surprised with us. Uh, Yara, thanks again. And Pepe, once again. Thank see you, girls. You're the best. It was a real pleasure. As Thank always. You. Namaste. Namaste.